Well, history is full of tyrants. Evil, selfish, power-hungry dictators. You think of Hitler, Mussolini. I'm sure you could think of others, but let me mention one that's relevant to our text. Caesar Nero. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Christians gathering in Rome during Nero's rule. And it's widely agreed upon that Paul's letter was written before Emperor Nero snapped. And what I mean is that the same emperor under whose authority Paul is writing would be the same emperor who would light Christians on fire for his own personal pleasure. How in the world can Paul ask the Roman citizens to honor such an evil, power-hungry, tyrannical leader? We'll be talking a lot about the Apostle Paul because he wrote Romans. Paul and Peter, both apostles, appear to derive their posture towards the authorities from Christ. The words of Christ, his actions, and his attitudes towards the authorities. I'm going to read briefly Mark chapter 12, verses 13 and 17, to give us an idea. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and, the, and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know you are true, and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And when they brought one, he said, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Later on in Mark's Gospel account, chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, this is Jesus before Pilate. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus provides the grace. Our grateful response of submission derives from Jesus' submitting perfectly. And through the Holy Spirit, he offers us the motivation for a similar response. Before we dive into this passage, let's make sure we have the context of Romans by reviewing it. Paul's letter to the Romans is a logical, comprehensive explanation of the gospel. If you've been around here for some time, you might know that the Hyderabad Catechism is pretty precious to us and follow, follows Paul's guilt, grace, gratitude outline. In the opening chapters, Paul illustrates human depravity, sin, and guilt. And then through chapter 11, Paul focuses on the covenant-keeping grace of God, who is faithful to Israel and is faithful to us. Finally, in chapter 12, Paul turns a corner and writes about how we are to respond in gratitude to what Christ has done for us. Let's look together at Paul's use of the law in chapter 13. Skip down to verse 8 for a moment. The one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, 
you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, question three of the Heidelberg is a simple one to memorize. I would encourage you to do so if you haven't done so already. But it asks, from where do you know your sin and misery? From the law of God is the answer. The next question, and what does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us in some that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So Paul in Romans 13 summarizes the law for us in verse 10, stating that love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. All of chapter 13 is really a continuation from the thought that he started in chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul states, Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love begins his thought in verse 12, 9, and love ends his thought in chapter 18, or, I'm sorry, in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. You see, Paul spent the previous 11 chapters of Romans describing in tremendous detail all that God has done for his people. This genuine love is the love to which Paul is referring. This love is not a love of grit. This love is not a love of guilt, but a love of grace and a love of gratitude. We cannot muster up this type of love. This is not a human love. This love is a type that is of God. It is divine. It is heavenly. This type of love can only be given by God. We do nothing but receive this love. And dear saints, as we read Paul's comments about submitting to authorities, this cannot be received rightly unless we first and candidly confess that we do not want to respond well to the civil authorities. We do not have the inherent ability to do so. We hate people reigning over us. I have a rebellious heart. <laughs> I don't want anyone telling me what to do. But take heart. The first step in this Christian comfort is knowing our guilt and misery. And so what Paul will say in Romans 13 must be heard first in light of our guilt. Our guilt to submit properly. We don't do it. What you will hear soon in Romans 13 is law. Paul is telling us to do and to do and to be. He's expounding on the true intent of the Ten Commandments, serving not only to expose our misery, but most importantly, driving us to Christ. He who perfectly submitted to God and civil authorities. He gives us his righteousness, his perfect law-keeping, his obedience to authorities that we just read about a few moments ago. God, in all of his wisdom, created the world. And he created everything in the world. Then, of the races of men, he chose Israel out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He baptized them and their families and their children through the Jordan River and brought them into the promised land. He showed his faithfulness to his people through his covenant. Then, in the fullness of time, 
He sent one born of man. He sent his one and only son, Jesus. He lived in the flesh. And not only did he obey the law on our behalf, he fulfilled it. He lived a life we could never live. He earned a righteousness we could never earn, not even in a thousand lifetimes. He died a death we could never die so that we could live again. And what does Jesus do with that earned righteousness? He graciously shares it with you and with me when we humbly humble ourselves to accept it. And if that wasn't enough, he sends his Holy Spirit to confirm in us that faith, to dwell within his people, assuring us of eternal life and making us heartily willing and ready to live for him. Dear sinner, if you're listening, repent now. Turn from your evil ways and take hold of Christ, our dearest treasure. He is our only hope in this life and the next. And dear Christian, take comfort in what Christ has provided for you. When we read that love fulfills the law, that is hard. You remember the bracelets from the 90s? WWJD, what would Jesus do? There's no comfort in that. What would Jesus do? Well, he would love perfectly, like he always did. He would obey the law perfectly, like he always did. There's no comfort. What did Jesus do? He bore our sins. He obeyed the law perfectly. Let us not be burdened by comparing our little, imperfect, sinless, sinful love with Christ's perfect, complete, sinless love. Let us take comfort in the fact that Christ fulfilled the law and the command to love. We don't need to try harder. We need to trust deeper. You see, saints, we can't get to chapter 13 of Romans without having a deep understanding and conviction of all that God has done. He has done this for us. He's done all this for you and for me. The love that Christ shared with us becomes our love. The love that Christ shared with us becomes our love. Until our hearts are changed by God, we have no hope. No hope of love. No hope in life. No hope in death. But when the love of Christ becomes ours through the Holy Spirit, then and only then can we respond in gratitude. This, this is where Paul leads us. We have to come through the love of Christ in all of its fullness in order to understand how we are to respond. And dear people of God, this is the main idea for our time together. The love of God fulfills the law of men. The everlasting, covenantal, sacrificial, perfect love of God fulfills all of the law, both man's law and God's. Keep in mind everything that we've covered so far. My outline is simple and is this. Be subject. Do good. Be afraid. And if you're concerned about that one, stick with me. We'll get there. Pay what is owed. Owe nothing. Put off sin. Put on Christ. And we'll review that later on, if you didn't catch it all. 
Let's look carefully at verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Our first bullet point is to be subject. With that background and context, let's focus on our attention on Paul's main thought. His opening words to this chapter, his thesis statement, his main idea, be subject. And this is a command to be, not to do. This is a verb in which we are passive. Someone else is acting upon us. Someone else is subjecting us. The governing authorities, our government, is subjecting us. These words are not difficult to understand, but they can be difficult to put into practice. All that Paul is doing is correctly applying the fifth commandment to the context of the Christian life. Now, kids, I have a question for you. So if you're a kid, look up here for a moment. What is the fifth commandment? Anybody? Thank you very much. Correct. Honor your father and mother. God's law states that children are to honor their father and mother. When we are children, our parents are the primary authority in our lives. And when we're adults, we're no longer under our parents' rule, although we do still honor them. When we're adults, we're under a different primary authority. When we're adults, we're under the primary authority of our church, our employer, and, of course, the government. In relation to the fifth commandment, the Heidelberg asks, what does God require in the fifth commandment? They answer, that I honor, I'm sorry, that I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother, and all in authority over me. Submit myself with due obedience to their good instruction and correction, and also bear patiently with their infirmities, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. What a great summary. It is God's will to govern us by their hand. And this is why Paul writes, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. We might get tripped up by what this is asking. What if their instruction and correction is not good? What if the authority is morally corrupt? How are we to bear patiently with their infirmities? Zacharias Ursinus, one of the authors of the Hutterberg, wrote in his commentary on this topic, and I think it's going to help us. Quote, Although it may sometimes be the case that wicked men are elevated to positions of authority who are not worthy of honor, yet the office must be distinguished from the persons who are invested with it. So that while we detest the wickedness of men, we should nevertheless honor their office on account of its divine appointment. Friends, regardless of who's in power, we have been given certain rights in this country. We have the freedom to exercise those rights. We can do many things. But amidst all the things that we can do, 
Paul is telling us one thing that we must do. Be subject. Paul goes on and gives us reasons why we, why we are to be subject or why we are to submit. Verse 3 starts, Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Second bullet point, do good. As Paul writes, he makes a connection back to the first point. By submission, we are not acting opposed to the government. Paul states that we are to refrain from negative activity, yes, to not do bad things. And here he states that we should engage in positive activity or do good things. Why? Again, Paul reminds us that we are to do good, for he, the government, is God's servant for your good, and you will receive his approval. Psalm 75.7 states, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. Daniel 2.21 states, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. We are to do good and obey the government because they are God's servants for our good. Did you catch that? The people that make up our government are God's servants or ministers of God. And this is the main reason we are to obey. Not because of them, but because of God. Additionally, Paul writes, you will receive his approval. And this was kind of a challenge for me to think about, and perhaps it is for you as well. I was never rewarded for obeying the speed limit. I never received a thank you note for paying my taxes. I, I don't think that happens. But how does the government reward what is good? Well, they do. One thing that came to mind, the Medal of Honor is a medal received by men and women who show terrific acts of bravery, forsaking often their own lives for their comrades, truly showing love to one another. And in this way, the government does reward what is good. But most importantly, God's approval is the reward for doing what is good. We may not get, and probably won't get, a medal of honor in this world, but we will receive eternal pleasures at his right hand in the next. Continuing, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Third point, to be afraid. Be afraid. Paul is contrasting being subject with doing wrong by using the word, but. Do what is good, but if you do wrong, then he follows that statement with two ideas or reasons using the word for. Why are we to be afraid? For or because he does not bear the sword in vain. And if that, doesn't, if that wasn't enough, Paul adds, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what is the purpose of government? It is to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, to punish evil, to restrain evil. And for the reasons of punishing evil, we would do rightly to fear our government. Our national armed services and our local law enforcement are, government, are governing authorities to protect the lives of the citizens. Us. The authority of the law is given to police officers. So when a citizen inflicts harm 
or potential harm on another citizen, the police have the authority of the, of the law to detain or to arrest that person and thereby starting the punishment process. Now, let's say there was a kid from high school, from your high school, who, if you can think about this, was a total jerk. He was snarky, sarcastic, often made cutting, hurtful remarks towards you and others in class. And this jerk really wanted to have some power in his life. So after graduation, he studied and became a police officer. And this once jerk and bully, now enforcer of the law, pulls you over for speeding, 22 miles over the speed limit. Come on. Not even close. Now, are you going to heed this officer's correction? Or are you going to blow it off like he used to blow you off in high school? Are you going to finally pay back all those times that he put you down? Do you give him a taste of his own medicine? Or do the baton, taser, handcuffs, and gun right there around his waist provide enough for you to reconsider? You better obey, because in this scenario, he is the minister of God's wrath. You are the wrongdoer. He is the avenger. If he pulled you over because you were breaking the law, then God is on his side, not yours, for upholding righteousness. Let's look at verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Our fourth point, pay what is owed. Paul's statements here help clarify his point of being subject. What are the items that we owe? Taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. However, in these statements, Paul's not concerned with the item, but he's actually concerned with the receiver or the benefactor. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed, and so on. To whom do we owe taxes? To whom do we owe revenue, respect, honor? The government, of course. And why? For, there are, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Paul reminds us over and over and over that the authorities are servants of God. In the very next sentence, Paul instructs us to owe no one. He links verses 7 and 8 together by using the same verb, to owe. And we'll come back to Paul in a moment. But where else have we heard a, a similar thing? Jesus makes a similar statement in Mark 15, like we just read. The same account in Matthew 22, where he says, Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Render to God that which is God's. They are asking Jesus the same question that the church in Rome was asking Paul. How does the Christian relate to government? Those that were asking Jesus were trying to trap him. But what did he say? He said, render or give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And render or give to God that which is God's. Well, what is Caesar's and what is God's? That's a good question and we would do well to think about that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, not Caesar. Jesus was rightly showing that the Christian's response 
to the governing authorities or the kingdom of men. Obey, submit, be subject. And that was not at all what they were expecting. Jesus was often misunderstood and seen as opposed to the governing authorities of his time because he was talking a lot about the kingdom of heaven. And frankly, that confused people. Jesus said before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. That's John 18, 36. People thought that the Messiah was going to usher in an earthly kingdom, overturn the Roman rule, bring back the Jewish law and customs. But such was not the case. But what did Jesus mean when he said, my kingdom is not of this world? Did he not say, repent, for the kingdom is at hand? Why did he pray, thy kingdom come? Was he saying that he was not ruling the earth? These are all legitimate questions, and Jesus carefully chose his words. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning his kingdom does not belong to this world. His kingdom belongs to the Father. And what we see throughout all of Scripture is that there are two kingdoms, and Christ is supreme and sovereign over both. And that is good news. One kingdom is the kingdom of man, and the other is the kingdom of God. And as a side note, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo wrote a theological treatise to this effect called The City of God in the 5th Century. So at your time at home, if you want some good reading, this would be a great way. Reading that book would be a great way to spend that time. Christ rules over both spheres, but in different means or in different modes. And Heidelberg 31 is helpful here. Christ is our, that's the church, our eternal king, who governs us by his word and spirit and defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. For the saints, Christ rules over us with his word and spirit, providing the grace, the only resource we will ever have to obey his law perfectly. At the same time, Christ rules over all humanity by the natural or revealed law, exposing sin, restraining evil, by means of civil authority and their sword. They help us to show love to one another. The scriptures are clear that we have God's natural and created order and natural revelation in one kingdom and God's moral law, special revelation in the other kingdom. We have all of mankind in the kingdom of men and we have God's chosen people in the family of God. And this is how, as Christians, we are to be in the world and not of it. There is much that could be said here, but how this ties back to our text is that as Christians, we are to be submitted to both kingdoms. The kingdom of man is ruled by the laws of men and is for our worldly good. But the kingdom of God is ruled by the laws of God and is for our eternal good. The kingdom of man is ruled by the created order, all of creation, for the good of all creation. The kingdom of God is ruled by God's special revelation, the scriptures, to the glory of the creator. It is often easy for us to obey both. God's law says you shall not steal. Man's law says stealing is punishable by fines or jail time. God's law says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Man's law says perjury 
which is bearing false witness or lying under oath, is a punishable offense. Obviously, God's law supersedes man's law every way, every time. If there were ever something that the government would pass, law, regulation, or order, that would go against any of the commandments in Scripture, we would obey God and not men. And the opposite is also true. If our government were to forbid items which God commands for his people, we would not obey. This is not what Paul is addressing. Paul is addressing our interactions with our neighbor, how we are to love one another. Paul is not addressing worship in this text, but life in the public square. So in verse 8 we read, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Our next point, owe no one anything. To review, Paul tells us to be subject, to do good, be afraid, give what is asked, especially to the authorities. And then this very next sentence, Paul instructs us to owe no one anything. He tells us to owe nothing to anyone. And why? For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Love fulfills the law. Dear people of God, Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So amidst the kingdoms of humanity, our truest and highest citizenship is with that of Christ. And so we do yearn for him to come back and to rule us by his word and spirit, his gospel, for as long as the day, and and long for the day when the kingdom is consummated over all the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. These things are expressed in the Lord's Prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his moments of deepest conviction, lays aside his rights as a citizen of this earth so that the heavenly kingdom would not be forfeited. According to the laws of men, they found him guilty for a crime that he never committed. But according to the law of God, he was the spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice, completely sinless. And yet he gave it all up for the Father's plan for the sake of loving his neighbor, for your sake and for mine. That is love. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The next point in the outline has two things. Put off sin, put on Christ. Put off sin, Put on Christ. Paul makes it very clear how we are to respond. 
So then let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Then in, in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is true conversion. As the Heidelberg ex explains in question 28, that true conversion is the dying of the old man and the quickening of the new. Paul writes to cast off sin, the old man, the desires of the flesh, and to put on Christ, the new man, the desires of the spirit. What is the dying of the old man? This is question 89 in, in the Heidelberg. When we truly hate, despise, and are sorry for our sin, we put off sin. The next question, what is the quickening of the new man? And by having heartfelt joy in God, causing us to delight in living according to his will, we are putting on Christ. We are all by nature prone to hate God and to hate our neighbor. Frankly, I don't know about you, but this week was a challenge for me. It was not a week filled of gratitude like I had hoped. I did a lot of repenting. Like I said before, I have a rebellious heart. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Our governing authorities told us how we are to work. They've dictated how we're to gather with friends. They've told us how we are to celebrate holidays together. In God's divine providence, these things happen the way that they did. This is exactly where Paul is instructing us to be. After our guilt and God's grace, we respond in gratitude. Our response of gratitude is to show love to our neighbor, but only after God reveals the riches of his love to us. And in this text and through the life of Christ, we are encouraged to submit to our authorities. We show love by obeying. The love of God compels us to love our neighbor, and that especially includes our government. Saints, all these things require great wisdom in prayer. And the application I want to leave you with is quite simple, but it's also very important. Please pray. Pray. Would you pray that the elders in our church, all of us, remain committed to the worship of God as central and ultimate while honoring civil authorities to the extent that they don't infringe on the pure worship of God. The Lord's Prayer is vital to this end when we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the Heidelberg explains, Grant that we and all men may renounce our own will and yield ourselves without gainsaying to your will, which alone is good, so that everyone may fulfill his office and calling as willingly and truly as the angels do in heaven. Also, pray that each one of us continues to hold tightly to the elements of true worship. The reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word, prayer, and the sacraments. Hold tightly the elements of pure worship, but to hold more lightly the circumstances of worship. For example, the time and place. God gave us a great grace this summer when we were meeting outside. We changed the time of the service. We changed the place. We weren't meeting in here. We were meeting outside. And, you know, masks. At that time, we just had to wear them as we were approaching our seats. But not one of these things is preventing us from the true worship of God. Not one of these things is preventing us from gathering together. And pray that God will strengthen us in worshiping him in spirit and in truth. 
Let's all continue to run to the Lord's Day worship. The word and sacraments which God promises to create and confirm us in faith. The means by which we can love God and neighbor, including our civil authorities from the heart. Dear ones, what a comfort that is. God promises to create and confirm us in faith through being here together. And finally, we want you to feel free to share your concerns with the elders as we navigate these issues. We want to encourage you to do so personally and freely, seeking to promote the bond of peace and of love. We are here to love you and to serve you. Please share your concerns with us. Remember what God is showing us? Until our hearts are changed, we have no hope. We have no hope of love, no hope in life, and no hope in death. But when the love of Christ becomes our love through the Holy Spirit, then and only then can we respond in gratitude. The love of Christ compels us, drives us, motivates us, spills out of us in love for one another. The love of God fulfills the law of men.